Well, good morning, friends. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and today we have a wonderful treat today. So today we today have a wonderful treat. Yeah, so as long as today is called today, let us praise the Lord. So he says today a lot in the Psalms, so why not me? So hey, it's great to be with you. We... We believe that we are called to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. And we also believe that that is done best in partnership. And so today we have with us pastor, leader, and founder of Mission Adelante, Jarrett Meek. And it's going to be a marvelous opportunity to learn from him as he joins us in our series through the book of James. And so today... As you hear God's word, be excited for what God is going to bring to us and form us through one of our partners, one of our leaders, one of our friends, Jeremy. So hear now God's word to us. It comes from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder... You have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. morning, friends. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, Wow, Christ Community and Mission Adelante, we've been partnering together now for about 13 years, and so every time I get a chance to be with you, and you know, I just have this sense of thankfulness and appreciation for the way that you guys have supported our ministry with immigrants and refugees over the years. Um, Today, um, as we get going here, I... um, you know, you guys have been going through the letter of James, and it's a strong letter, and we have, you know, this is not going to be an exception today. There's some pretty fiery words coming from James for us today, and we're going to dig into those, and um, so we all just kind of need to buckle up and see, and see where this goes. So um, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, and then, uh, then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity today to 
be with this congregation, these friends, and we just pray that you would speak to each of us. We pray that your word would land in our hearts. We pray that you would soften our hearts to be able to have a place uh, for the seed that you want to plant in us today, and that it would continue to grow, and that we would um, grow as, as followers of you and as people who know how to love our neighbor well. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a pastor and sociologist named Tony Campolo. Some of you guys might have heard of him. He's been around for a while, and he tells a story, which some of you may have also heard, um, about a time that he was traveling, and he, was, he went to Hawaii, and he gets there, and you know, Hawaii is kind of a delayed, um, you know, they're on a different time zone, and so your, your clock gets kind of messed up when you travel that far. And so he's there, and he wakes up at 3.30 in the morning, ready to go, and hungry. So he goes out to the, uh, you know, looking for a diner, and he's walking through the streets of Honolulu. He finds this diner, wants to get some breakfast, and when he walks in, uh, he sits down and orders a donut and some coffee. And it wasn't long before he got into his donut that a group of about eight or nine prostitutes walk in. And they come, and they're kind of loud and talking a lot, and they sit down beside him, and he's, he's eating his donut and coffee, and he overhears them talking, and one of them says, yeah, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. Well, and the others start kind of making fun of her and said, what do you want? We're going to throw you a birthday party. And she says, no, I wasn't expecting that. Actually, I've never had a birthday party, so why would I get one now? So Tony's sitting there, and he, uh, you know, after they leave, he asks the owner of the diner, whose name was Harry, um, if these women come in often. And he says, oh, yeah, they come in pretty much every morning. And, and she goes, he goes, well, what's the name of the one that was sitting right by me? And, and he goes, oh, that's Agnes. And he says, well, I just learned that Agnes's birthday's tomorrow. What do you say we throw her a birthday party? And so Harry loves the idea, and so they kind of make their plans. And the next morning at 2.30 in the morning, Tony is there decorating the diner, and Harry's made a cake, and Harry's wife has communicated, got the word out on the street to all of Agnes's friends that there's going to be a surprise party for Agnes at the diner at 3.30. So they're all ready. Everybody's there. You know, a bunch of Agnes's friends are in the diner with, with Tony, and Harry and, his, and Tony and Harry's wife, and Agnes walks in to the most amazing surprise party, and her mouth drops, her knees start to buckle, and she starts to cry. And they begin singing happy birthday to her, and they finish, and she's just speechless. And then Harry brings out the birthday cake, and she, she just looks at the cake. And Harry's like, you know what? You need to blow out the candles. And she just can't blow out the candles. She's so excited about this cake. It has her name on it. And Harry's like, come on. Now we're all hungry. Agnes, we go ahead and cut the cake. And she goes, can I just look at it for a little bit longer? Do I have to cut it? And he goes, well, no, you don't have to cut it. In fact, if you just want to keep the cake, that's fine. And she goes, actually, I do. Can I go show my mom? And so she, she leaves the party and takes the cake <laughs> to show her mom this cake. And, you know, in the awkward moment there, uh, Tony, who kind of had become the de facto MC of the event, is in this diner full of prostitutes and the owner of the diner and, and the guest of honor has left. And so he's, now he's like, well, I don't know what we should do. So he's, he just says, why don't we pray? 
And so everybody looks at him like, that's a weird thing to say. And so he ends up praying for Agnes, praying for her, um, for her to be blessed on her birthday, for her to live many years, for her, to, for her salvation. And after he's done praying, Harry, the owner of the diner, says to him, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. <laughs> and he goes, well, what kind of a church, what kind of a church do you, or what's the name of your church? He goes, well, you know what? Um, I, I'm the pastor of the kind of a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes. Isn't that so Jesus, though? If you stop and think about that story, can you imagine Jesus in that situation? Lifting up the value of somebody who's being undervalued, somebody the world looks down upon, somebody the world overlooks or thinks negatively about. Today we're going to talk about the sin of partiality. It's an insidious sin that distorts and demeans the value of the vulnerable. It's an insidious sin that takes the value of something that God created, put his image in some person who's beautiful, and it distorts that value and it undermines it and takes it away. The sin of partiality, it's interesting because that word partiality doesn't have that strong of an effect on us when we hear it, does it? It's like, oh, I'm partial to this or I'm partial to that. The idea of partiality just kind of goes right past us as though it were nothing serious. But James is going to tell us today, no, this is deadly serious. When it's applied in a personal sense, it has deadly implications and it's a significant thing. And so we're going to look today, we've already kind of read through the passage, but as we go, we're going to look at three precepts repudiating partiality. Now I like alliteration, so we've got a a little (laughs) mouthful there, repudiating. Everybody repeat the word repudiating. It's a fun word to say, isn't it? All right, so we're going to look in the first, we're going to divide this passage into three segments, and we're going to look at them kind of one at a time. The first segment's verses one through four, and I just want to read through this again for us and talk about a few things that we can see here. First, it says, my brothers. Now, James starts out with a gentle term, my brothers, right? He's like, we're going to be kind and gentle here with you guys. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? A few things I want to just point out in this passage. First of all, um, we're going to see throughout the whole passage this concept of poor man, and the, the Greek word that's used here for the poor man is tokos. I don't know if I pronounce it right or not, but it, has a, it, it literally means one who cowers or crouches. You can imagine somebody who's been humiliated. So it, it, can, it definitely, in most situations, in most contexts, it has a very close connection to the idea of material poverty. But it also has broader connotations. Somebody who's humble, in a good sense, could be called the uh, patoko. Or somebody who's humble in a bad sense, in the sense that they've been humiliated, can also be a patoko. Somebody on the margins, somebody who's overlooked, somebody who's vulnerable, somebody 
who others have devalued. That's what we're talking about here. So as we get into the passage, we see, I just want to point out a few words. It says, show no partiality. And then towards the end, it says, have you not then made distinctions? And then it says, and you've become judges. There's this connecting idea between partiality, showing, um, making distinctions, and becoming judges. You know, when you are going to sell your house, one of the steps in the process is you have to have an appraiser come and look at every detail in the house and tell you how much, or actually tell the bank how much your house is worth, right? So they're looking at the house to make a judgment of its value. And the sin of partiality, the idea of partiality making distinctions judgment is the idea that we're making a judgment on the value of a person. Now that gets serious, friends. Making a judgment on the value of a person judging their worth, sometimes very unconsciously, in fact, a lot of times, very unconsciously, our mind makes these value judgments, worth judgments on people. And that leads us to show partiality. The problem with that is this. Genesis tells us that God has created us in his image. That means he's stamped us with his image, the imago Dei in the Latin. It's this idea that each person, everyone who's been created, has this value that God has put in us. Somehow we reflect his character. We reflect somehow who he is. There's something about us, this imago Dei that's been stamped on us, that makes every single person valuable in God's eyes. The sin of partiality undermines that. Martin Luther King said, the whole concept of the Imago Dei, as it is expressed in Latin, the image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God, and this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him his worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. That means there are no levels. There aren't some who have more of the image of God than others. There aren't some that are somehow more valuable or have some other level or extra image of God. All of us have the image of our creator stamped inside us, which gives us our value. Now, the context for Martin Luther King's quote and, and writing of this, obviously, was a time when our nation had segregation, when some people drank at these water fountains and others at those, when some people used these bathrooms and others other bathrooms, when some people sat at the back of the bus and some people sat wherever they want. Talk about distinctions. Talk about partiality. Talk about placing one group above another group. How do we see this today? What does this look like in our context, in our world today? You know, last year after George Floyd's murder, uh, one of my friends posted on Facebook that she had been pulled over 10 times by the age of 21. And usually, no reason had been given to her for being pulled over. Partiality. And then, when I look at my own life and I see inside the layers 
of bias that are there. Over the years, I've kind of been on this journey of trying to figure out where do I have bias in my own heart? What does that look like? And I've seen it in so many different places, coming up, seeping up in different ways. You know, um, I lead a ministry with immigrants and refugees, and so do I prioritize donors sometimes over our own community? In the meetings that I set up, in a time when people are together and I, you know, who will I, who will I gravitate, who will I make sure feels comfortable in a certain situation? You know, also early on in our ministry, and this has been something that I've been trying to undo in my own heart from the very beginning, actually starting a handful of years ago, when I started to realize, wow, we've created a ministry that's doing a lot of good, but also we've created this idea of a, an us serving a them. A privileged us serving a needy them, and somehow we've created a distinction in the way that we're viewing things, and I would say, in my own heart, that was there. And how long has it taken me to undo that and try and figure out how do we create a new we, where we're all the same, where we're all seen as having something to offer? The sin of partiality. You know what, friends? Prioritizing the privileged devalues the poor. Prioritizing the privilege devalues the poor, and that's the first precept for repudiating partiality that we see here. Disdain, hatred, those are obvious. But what about paternalism? What about dismissiveness? What about unconscious bias? Those are all a failure to recognize the value in a person. They all devalue somebody. Let's continue on um, with our next section here, verses 5 through 7. And we'll continue reading, and there's more fire in this here for us. Uh, James says, listen, my beloved brothers. Well, don't you love it how now he's like saying, my beloved brothers? He's like going, he's going, this is getting harder, so I've got to be softer at the same time. So... Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Wow. What stands out to me at the very beginning of this, that First part, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And then at the end, he's really got some harsh and strong words for the rich, right? What stands out to me here is that James doesn't affirm the rich. He's affirming, though, the poor. Very strong words, he's affirming the poor. And that's not to say that the rich don't have the same value, but James is concerned that the undervalued, that the marginalized, that the vulnerable are being overlooked. Their value is being taken away. It's being stripped from them. And he wants to make sure that that does not happen. You see, God magnifies the value of the marginalized. That's our second precept. God magnifies the value of the marginalized. And that's a beautiful thing. I don't know how, how many of you guys have been watching Ted Lasso. You know, it's a great show. It's got a little bit of profanity in there. 
So it's not necessarily great for your kids. But it's, got, it's a great show. It just won a whole bunch of awards, and I've been, I've been loving it. But there's one of the characters in Ted Lasso. His name is Nate. And, you know, Ted is, t- to give you the backstory a little bit, Ted, I'm, I'm going to try to not ruin it for everybody, right? But Ted is, uh, was an American football coach, and he gets recruited to go over to England and coach a soccer team, which he knows nothing about soccer. So that's the whole premise of the story. And one of the characters in the story is Nate. And Nate is kind of like the water boy. I mean, he's the guy who, who takes the water. He, he does the uniforms. He takes care of all the needs kind of behind the scenes that the team needs. He's taken care of. But the problem is he is brutalized by the, by the, the team members, by the players. He's just abused. I mean, he is physically harassed. He's, you know, he's emotionally He's put down verbally. I mean, this poor guy, I mean, he's just getting trashed. And you see it, and you just kind of cringe, and it makes you kind of angry. And Ted, the coach, is kind of seeing all this, but he's never really given that, um, you know, he's always kind of seeing Nate just as a, as a regular guy. And so Ted keeps asking Nate, like, for his opinion on stuff. And Nate's at first kind of blown away by the idea, wow, why does he want to have my opinion? And so reluctantly, Nate starts giving Ted ideas. And it turns out Nate's ideas about soccer are great. And Ted, who knows nothing about it, is just kind of putting Nate's ideas into practice, which is pretty awesome. Before before you know it, others are starting to see the value of Nate. Nate gets promoted to one of the assistant coaches. It's a huge day for the guy who's like picking up the dirty laundry to get promoted to assistant coach. And so... Nate gets promoted, and then kind of at the climax of Nate's uh, rise to the top, his being magnified in his value, he's actually, they're actually in this big game, and Ted gets sick at the end of the game. Man, I'm ruining it for you guys. (laughs) Ted gets sick. I'm sorry. (laughs) Not that sorry, but you know. (laughs) Ted gets sick at the end of the game, like the game is on the line. And so the other assistant coaches are kind of talking about, well, what do we do? What? You know, they get the ball back, and and Nate steps in, makes a bold call, and they win the game. Man, it's his moment of glory. And all of a sudden, Nate went from down here to being magnified, his value being recognized finally. And it's a beautiful moment. And isn't that the kind of thing that we just love? We love to see the Cinderella story. We love to see... You know, it's kind of one of the most common themes in stories and narratives is this idea that the humble are exalted. Isn't that beautiful that somehow people just gravitate to that concept and it's such a biblical concept? God exalts the humble and brings down the proud. And we see that that's what's happening here. You know, for me, this week... um, this week, I had a discipling group that meets in our house, and we met on Tuesday night. And, you know, I'd been kind of struggling, feeling kind of distant from God lately. And so I shared this with my group of guys. And, and Jose, one of the guys in our group, he, he's an undocumented immigrant from Mexico. He just starts encouraging me. He just starts building me up. He just starts saying, you know what, here's what we need to do. And next thing you know, he's got the guitar, and there's just four of us in the group. Four men with 
like out-of-tune voices. <laughs> and we're singing in my living room, Tu Fidelidad, which is your faithfulness. And this worship time becomes mixed in with prayer that Jose is leading us in. And it's just, we're all just kind of praying, worshiping, singing, praying some more, worshiping. About 20 minutes later, we all look up and we're kind of like, wow, what was that? That was sweet. That was beautiful. And for me, I'm sitting here just as I process afterwards, just kind of my heart was full and I was just so thankful for Jose leading me spiritually. A beautiful thing. Somebody who the world might overlook. Some people might judge. Some people might look down on Jose. But he was my, my leader, my spiritual leader that night. A beautiful thing. To the vulnerable and the marginalized, James has this to say to you. God sees you. He sees your value. He knows who you are despite what the world may say about you, despite what you may feel coming from others. God sees you. And to the privileged, God has some challenging words. My question is, we here at Christ Community, all of us, are we going to join God in affirming the value of the undervalued? Are we going to join God in seeing and recognizing the value of people who the world doesn't recognize their value? And are we going to together proclaim that value? Recognize it. Acknowledge it. God magnifies the value of the marginalized. So first, prioritizing the privilege devalues the poor. Second, God magnifies the value of the marginalized. We're going to continue on to our third section here. Um, verses 8 to 13, it says, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. And if you, if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty." For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, undervaluing the third precept is undervaluing the vulnerable violates the law. Undervaluing the vulnerable violates the law. And this idea that we have in this passage is... and. And James is taking some pains here to explain it and make sure that we understand it. He's saying, you know what? Um, you know about not committing murder, not committing adultery. You maybe say, great, I'm great. I haven't done those things. But what about if you, com if you committed the sin of partiality? What if you've undervalued or demeaned or taken away from or overlooked the value of one of my people who I've created in my image. That also is sin, friends. That also puts you in the same lump of category of somebody who's committed murder, somebody who's committed adultery. It's a serious deal. And so you see, James 
calling to mind the idea, the, the, what he calls the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the things for me over the past several years that's just started popping out is that this, this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, just like it's all over the place all of a sudden. For me, I'm seeing it everywhere now in the Bible. I'm like Leviticus chapter 19, half the chapter is talking about love your neighbor as yourself and applying it to different situations. And significant for us, specifically applying it to loving immigrants as ourselves. And then so in the Old Testament, you see that. And then you see, obviously, when somebody asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is, Jesus gives the two-part answer to a one-part question. He says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, Right? Jesus hammering on this and everything he teaches kind of is connecting back to this. And that's what he said. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. And then you see the Apostle Paul bringing it up too. He obviously learned from Jesus in his spiritual time with him and also maybe from the other apostles. But in Galatians, Paul says the whole law is summarized by this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And now here we have James also, the half-brother of Jesus, who obviously must have heard his teaching and must have been around the other disciples a lot. And now he's bringing it up and he's calling it the royal law. This thing has become famous, right? And there's part of this phrase that's super important. It's as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I like to spend a little bit of time camping out on this concept of as yourself because it, the idea here is that we're to put ourselves in our neighbor's shoe. If we can put ourselves in our neighbor's shoes and then we're supposed to have the imagination to think about what that would be like if I could only see myself in my neighbor, in their situation, whether they're a Haitian refugee seeking asylum, what would that be like? How would I want to be loved? Whoever the person is, our neighbor, if they're a homeless person on the side of the street, if they're somebody that we work with, can we put ourselves in our neighbor's shoe and see ourselves there? The problem is, with partiality, that instead of putting ourselves in our neighbor's shoes, we've put ourselves in the judgment seat over our neighbor. And we're taking a position of judging their worth, their value. Are they deserving? Are they going to take advantage of the system? Are they documented or undocumented? And these judgments that we make are, be, begin to be the things that we maybe unconsciously, sometimes barely consciously, sometimes very consciously become the measuring stick that we use to determine their worth in some way or another. And so in the beginning, in these first few passages, when we talked about showing partiality, making distinctions, and becoming judges with evil thoughts, that's what James is talking about. But this passage in the very end here gets quite interesting because love your neighbor as yourself, James basically says in... um, Down in verse 13, or in verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged. James is turning the tables in this. He starts out saying, you've put yourself in the judgment seat, and now he's saying, but watch out, because in doing that, you're actually 
the one who is subject to the judgment. James is doing a little bit of a wordplay here for us, and it's a little scary because we've been in a place where we, as privileged, are looking at others who maybe are looked down upon by, by the world around us, and then we are making judgments on them that impact the way we view their worth, which gets to this great commandment. And James is saying, whoa, watch out. Because instead of in the judgment seat where you've placed yourself, you're now the one who's on trial. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Friends, have we not received mercy? Have we, as believers in Christ, not received an abundance of mercy overflowing to us? Have we not had a lot forgiven of us? Did God not view us in our state with all of our brokenness and all of our sin as valuable to him? He did. Did he not? Sometimes I remind myself of the servant who owed his master a great debt. You remember that story that Jesus told and the servant goes to his master Uh, The master's ready to throw him in jail and punish him and take everything from him and his family and everything. He comes to to the master on his knees begging for forgiveness. Just a little bit more time and the master hears his plea and he has mercy on him and he forgives his great debt. And then this same servant goes out and to another person, colleague of his, who happens to owe him very little, he says, no, I'm making you pay every last penny of this, and if not, you're going to jail. When the master hears about this, he's indignant. The one who, whom he had show, to whom he had showed mercy now is not showing mercy to another. And that is what the sin of partiality does for us, friends. It puts us in that place where when God has seen us as valuable, we are not seeing others through that same lens of value and mercy. Will we learn to put ourselves in our neighbor's shoes? What does it look like to join God in affirming the value of the undervalued? Where do we struggle to see value in those around us? We have some soul searching to do, friends. Where have I shown partiality? Where have my thoughts or my conversations devalued others? Where have I put myself in the judgment seat over somebody who may be marginalized? Where have I made distinctions? Today we've looked at three precepts repudiating partiality. The first one, prioritizing the privileged, devalues the poor. The second one, God magnifies the value of the marginalized. And the third one, undervaluing the vulnerable violates God's royal law. I just want to take just a few moments and give us some time to reflect because these are strong words that requires a little bit of thought and reflection for us to let them sink in, to let God speak to each of us. So we're going to take some silence. I just want to let you guys spend a little time praying and then I'll close us here in a minute or two.
help me, help us. Father, help us to be able to see because sometimes we're blinded to our own sin. Sometimes the sin of partiality can be very obvious, but other times it can just be very subtle. A way of thinking, a way of feeling about our neighbor that doesn't recognize their value. Help us to see it. Help us to care about it. Give us the stamina and the endurance to do the hard work of listening to you on these things, of peeling back the layers in our own hearts. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.